We started a series on prayer in the beginning of January, of course, very appropriately so because of, you know, we're coming in the front, on the front end of this year. And you have realized and I have realized that what you do first determines how much you get done. What you do first determines very much everything else that gets done. For instance, when you pack in a truck, right? When you move in, what you put in first determines how much you get, get to put in, right? <laughs> and so we want to make sure that we start in the beginning of this year with, um, with understanding prayer, but beyond understanding it, actually doing it. And so more than any other series that I've taught, I wanted to make this the most practical series you've ever heard <laughs> because we have got to actually pray and not just learn how to pray or get taught the benefits of prayer or being told that how Jesus prayed and that filled him with power and, and we need to pray and it's important for you to pray for your children. It's important for you to pray for your wife. Prayer does all these different things and prayer is not us um, twisting God's arm. It's us embracing God's will. That's what Jesus did when he prayed and he said, not my will be done, but yours. He was embracing God's will. And that's what we do when we pray. We are busy not getting stuff. We're losing stuff. We're losing uh, selfishness. We're losing greed. We're losing distractions in this world. Things are taken away from us when we pray. And so the first prayer we went through, because there's all these different kinds of prayers in the Bible, right? The first prayer we looked at was, in fact, the prayer of repentance, because it's the prayer we pray when we come to God. When we come to God, we repent. And the prayer of repentance, we have to have discernment as to, is this true repentance I have or is this false repentance I have? And so my encouragement to you is was to pray like David when you pray the prayer of repentance and not like Judas. Judas had attrition. He had worldly sorrow. He was sorrowful for everything that he had lost. David, on the other hand, he had godly sorrow. He was sorrowful for what he had done against God. He said, my sin is against you, God. And until we realize that we are repenting for violating the character of God when we sin, we're not truly repenting. I've seen people weep over their mistakes. But it was false repentance because they were weeping. They had a worldly sorrow. They wept over what they had lost what they had done to themselves or to others, but they have not wept before God over what they have done against Him. So we pray the prayer of repentance as we join in with the prodigal son and we say, Father, against you and against heaven have I sinned. I no longer deserve to be a son of yours. Make me your slave. Make me your servant. Of course, God took him in as a son. My point is, we don't deserve mercy. If you deserved mercy, it wouldn't be mercy, right? You, don't, you and I don't deserve grace. It wouldn't be gracious of God. If we deserved it, it would be a payment. So we come before God like that tax collector versus the Pharisee and the tax collector beating his chest saying, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. We come before God like King David and said, creating me a clean heart, God, have mercy upon me according to your loving kindness. God, right now, I don't need justice. I don't want justice. I want mercy. We come to God begging for mercy because of how we have misrepresented him in this world when we sin. Then we talked about the prayer of thanksgiving 
that's so appropriate after you pray the prayer of repentance because it's like, what, what other response do we have when we are forgiven for so much other than being grateful, thankful, and being humbled because of it? In the prayers of thanksgiving, I encourage you to go to Psalms and get yourself a Bible, a Bible of prayer, and just start highlighting all of the Psalms that David wrote out where he was thanking the Lord. And then don't just sing Psalms, pray them. Pray those Psalms. It'll, it'll take a whole hour for you to just keep thanking him. While you thank him, it's doing something in you. While you're repenting before him, it's doing something in you. And then we talked about the prayer of um, consecration, where what we do is we are a living sacrifice placed on the altar. The problem with living sacrifices is what? They, they tend to crawl off the altar, right? <laughs> they tend to crawl off like... So I encourage you to pray the prayer of consecration in the mornings where you consecrate yourself to God. Of course, you pray the prayer of repentance in the evening, right? <laughs> well, you pray the prayer of consecration in the morning, and I do this. I say, God, I give myself to you. Like the prophet said, here I am, Lord, send me. Use me as an instrument in your hands. Do with my life what you know best. And I pray the prayer of consecration where I say, God, I give you my thoughts, that my thoughts, that I will think your thoughts after you, that I'll think in a scriptural way, that I'll renew my mind and so be transformed. Lord, I give you my eyes. I'm like Job made a covenant with his eyes that he would not look lustfully, that he would not look with covetous eyes and that he would not look with envious eyes, a big sin within our culture today. It's envy. The reason I don't have one car is because you got two. Why can't I have what you have? And we have to pray, God, help me not live covetous, with covetous eyes where I'm always comparing myself to others and angry over the fact that I don't seem to have it as good as those I watch and see on Facebook and look at the Kardashians, my goodness. Why can't I live like that? Don't want to look like it, but I don't, I do, I, I don't mind the airplanes. <laughs> and I say, Lord, not only do I consecrate my mind, my thoughts, to think your thoughts after you, my eyes, I make a covenant that I will not be look with lustful eyes, but with my mouth that I will not speak vain words, knowing that I will give an account to every word that I say, Help me, God, bridle my tongue. And then, Lord God, I consecrate my heart, the seat of my emotions, the seat of my desires, the seat of my conscience, that I would guard it, that I will not grow bitter, hateful, and resentful in my heart. But, God, that you will touch my heart with your grace, that I may desire more of you today than I did yesterday. And then, God, I consecrate my hands and my feet where I go and what I do. God, I, I, I give you my body. Like, like Paul said, I beseech you, therefore, brothers, to not be conformed to the ways of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and give your bodies as a living sacrifice. This is your reasonable worship. This is my reasonable worship that I will consecrate my life to you. 
So after we've learned to pray the prayer of repentance, we've learned to pray the prayer of thanksgiving, we've learned to pray the prayer of consecration, we've learned to pray the prayer of adoration. The prayer of adoration is you cannot pray the prayer of adoration if you do not know the attributes of God. If you do not know what it means that, if you do not understand the aseity of God, you couldn't pray that attribute regarding him. You couldn't adore his aseity if you don't know what it is, which is the fact that he is altogether separate and altogether different, that he needs no one and nothing to exist. He doesn't need anything or anyone. He exists all by himself, that he's omnipresent, that he's everywhere. God, I I adore you. You are all-powerful. You are all-knowing. Nobody teach you, teaches you anything. You learn nothing. I cannot inform you of anything. You're not surprised by anything. But God, that you are sovereign, that you are God of the universe. You are God everywhere. There's not a place in this world or in the universe, in heaven or in hell, where you are absent. And somebody goes, how are you saying God is in hell? Well, David said, I can't even make my bed in hell. You're there too. But he's not there in a merciful way. All you receive there is his justice. All you know, the only part of God you know in hell is his wrath. And so when we pray the prayer of adoration, we are adoring God for who he is, seeing the beauty of him. And then we started with the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. And I want us to look at this opening statement of the Lord's Prayer because, you know, you don't naturally know how to pray, right? Nobody knows how to naturally pray. That's why the disciples asked Jesus, teach us to pray. They didn't say teach us how to pray. They said teach us to pray. I don't want to have another five points on how to do this thing. I want to actually do it. Teach us to pray. Because they saw him pray and they they were amazed. Like Mary... Queen of Scots. She had this, uh, you know, she was not a reformer and Scotland had become completely reformed, led by a man by the name John Knox. And John Knox literally would walk around with an axe. This man, (laughs) he was a guy's guy. He was a man's man. He wasn't almost a little bit gay. He was just a man's man, right? (laughs) So he, he got angry at the queen. He was a minister, and he heard that the queen didn't agree to the doctrines of grace. She was Roman, and he started threatening her, and he was belligerent, publicly shamed her for the heretic that she was, and uh, she said, that she fears the prayers of John Knox more than 10,000 armies. Because when she saw him pray, she cowered into a corner and said, I fear this man. I fear his prayers more than I fear 10,000 armies. And when the disciples saw Jesus pray, they go, teach me to do that. Because it's not a natural thing. It's something that we have to be taught. It's what's so important. You have to learn how to pray. You have to pray. Otherwise, who's going to teach your kids how to pray? That's why family worship is so important. If we don't teach them how to repent, 
In other words, if I don't go to my children and I repent to them before God and repent to God for misrepresenting him in front of my children, how would they ever know what it means to repent? So I practice that. You have to practice repenting. I practice excuse me, prayer in front of my children. Otherwise, how would they ever learn since it's a learned skill? So yeah, Jesus said to them, pray this way, in this way. He didn't say, say these words. Uh, sure, you can recite it. Literally, we are told later on, don't just keep reciting prayers. <laughs> this is not to be recited. The Lord's Prayer, it's really the disciples' prayer. It's not the Lord's Prayer because he says, forgive us our sins. He never had any sin. So he wasn't praying that prayer. He was teaching them to pray in this way. And he said, pray along this way. In other words, pray along these, these categories. And the first category says, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Pray that way, in this way. Thanks, T. We are to pray that God's name be declared holy. That's what he's telling us to do. Declare God's name to be holy here on earth. As it's been declared there in heaven. Do it here as it is there. Now we have a couple of examples in the Bible where um, heaven's curtains were opened and somebody was able to look into heaven and see what's going on. We have Isaiah, we have Ezekiel, and then we have John. Those three examples where they saw heaven and they saw the same thing, all three of them. You know, when we went through the book of Revelation, so he, in, in the second year of Bible school, John saw heaven and he saw the Ancient of Days sitting on the throne. There's like 10,000 sons. And there are these four heavenly beasts. One translation calls them, another is heavenly angels. And they, day and night, fall down on their knees, flat on their faces, crying holy, 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 to the superlative degree. In, in Hebrew, if you repeat something three times, it couldn't be greater than what, what, what you, where you just placed it. Holy, holy, holy. So God is the absolute holiest of holy. As a matter of fact, the temple... Or you might say even the mobile temple before the temple was built by Solomon, where they traveled through the desert, uh, they had the uh, tabernacle, right? And you always had the holy, uh, the, the holy and the holiest of holies, right? And so that is in fact a picture of heaven, where God resides. And if you come before God, you fall down dead. That's why the, only the priest could go in there one time a year, and if he had sin, they would have to pull him out by his leg because they had a rope tied around his leg now that is that is how God ought to be regarded as holiest of holy Ezekiel saw the same thing the heavenly beasts day and night fall down and worship him shouting holy 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 and as they do the 24 elders 12 tribes of Israel 12 apostles 24 elders and those representing them, which includes you, fall down and worship him with the four angels. We cry, holy, holy, holy. That is God's most predominant attribute. 
They're not crying, love, love, love. They're not crying, provision, provision. <laughs> no, charismatic guys do that. No, no. They're shouting, holy, holy, holy. Every one of his attributes is 100% one with all of the other attributes. For instance, he's holy, but he's also eternal, meaning he's eternally holy. He's also just and loving. That means his justice is loving and his love is always just. So we'll talk about the attributes some other time. But his predominant attribute in heaven is his holiness, his otherness, his moral superiority or his moral perfection. And this is heaven. And this is what he's telling us. Our Father in heaven Hallowed be your name. We are to pray God's name. Be regarded. His name be regarded. Here on earth. As it's regarded in heaven. By those angels and the 24 elders. We are to pray that God's name be treated here. As his name is treated there. But Hollywood and generally speaking. People denigrate the name of God. Can you even watch a movie today where they don't Jesus Christ all day long? And oh my God, and all, it's, we have to view his name, his name. Now, people say like, no, I view him as holy, but then when you use his name, don't use it in vain. Don't use his name. Don't use his name. Don't use his name. You never find me coming to you saying, well, God told me, to tell you or God told I'm not using God's name flippantly when I do that is because I read it see I don't just use God's name to get you to hear me out or to get you to actually agree with me because if I say if you come to me and say God tells God told me like if I say like God told me he didn't tell you <laughs> but like we got to watch out and not just use his name flippantly. All right? Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. A prayer could follow along these lines. Our Father in heaven, I pray you help me that I will never disgrace your name by my actions. I will never bring shame to your name by my choices and by my conduct. That I will never bring shame to you, but rather that your name be honored in me and in my family because of your sanctifying work in us. Lord, I pray for our church leaders and our church members that they all live in such a way that your name be honored here on earth as it is honored there in heaven. Finally, Lord, I pray that your name be revered and respected, not just in our homes and in our churches, but also that our culture will treat your name with honor and not dishonor. Lord, that our schools will admit that you are holy and that your name is holy. Lord, that our political leaders and those in authority, authoritative positions will declare your name as sacred. Lord, you instructed me to pray this. You directly instructed me to say, hallowed be your name. This is what I'm supposed to pray, God. And the reason you call me to do this is because prayer is your chosen means 
through which you are going to accomplish these things. Prayer is your chosen means by which you accomplish these things, where your name will again be regarded as sacred in our society, in our homes, and by us. Thank you for using me as an instrument in this eternal work. And all the saints said, Amen. <laughs> you have to, if you're going to pray the Lord's Prayer, you have to pray that God's name be revered and honored throughout the world. And then in Luke 11 verse 2, it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Just want to give a, a caveat here. So we actually went through that whole series on the kingdom of God, how to view what it means when it says kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of our Lord and Christ. It's really all the same. It's like the body of Christ or the church, same thing. And uh, we discussed what the kingdom means. It's really a sphere over which a king rules and reigns, all right? And here we are, to, we are told to pray, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, understand this is actually a follow-up on the first, first line, which is hallowed be thy name. Pray hallowed be thy name. And then he says, pray your kingdom come because God's name is hallowed. God's name is regarded as sacred as authoritative to the degree in which his kingdom has come. In other words, the more God's kingdom is revealed, the more his name is honored and revealed. The more God's kingdom is, is revealed, the more his name is honored and revealed. So here's a question for you. Over which realms does God's kingdom stretch? Over which realms does God's kingdom stretch? Well, it's God is ruling over which realms. Now, just to clarify, because this is a large subject and I don't want to make small of it, but Jesus said, and you will know that my kingdom has come when I cast demons out what by the finger of God, right? When I cast demons out by the finger of God, you know that the kingdom is here. And we saw him cast out demons. We know his kingdom is here. But it's like a seed. Everything is like a seed in the kingdom of God. And that kingdom is growing. And he said, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And of its increase, the government's increase, there shall be no end. Forever and ever and ever and ever. The kingdom of God will expand and grow and conquer all its enemies. So over which realms does God's kingdom stretch? There's much debating over this, the answers to this question, but I'm going to attempt to put it in a very plain and understandable terms for you this morning. There are literally, that I, I just put them into five categories or five realms or five governments that God has established over which God is going to reign or is reigning. So his kingdom's already here, is growing. Isaiah 6, 9, I think 6, 8. 
But in John 3, um, let, let me say there are five realms. That's the, the self-government that God established. He says, have self-control. You are a government of a self. It's a, it's a fruit of the spirit, actually, self-discipline, self-control. Then we have the family government, which is familial government. This is God has made the husband the head of the home. And then there's church government. God has established elders to rule a church. And then you have civil government. God has given them the sword. And he said, you are to discipline and punish evildoers. You bear the sword. They are allowed to kill and use the sword. Sword is an instrument of death. And then, of course, there is the universe and everything in it. So let's just walk through that quick. Number one, self-government. You see the individual, I'm talking about which realms does God's kingdom stretch over, right? Well, the first is self-government. And the, and the individual person who has been born again has entered his kingdom. We say it again, the person who is regenerated, born again, receives a new heart from God. That person enters God's kingdom. It says so in John 3, 5. It says, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, in other words, unless you are born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. In other words, the moment somebody is born of the Spirit, he enters the kingdom of God. Jesus becomes his Lord. Jesus becomes his king. Jesus becomes his savior and his ruler. And this is where the disconnect comes with our modern day church. People say, well, God loves you as if that is, if that is interpreted, well, God saves you. Well, God loves everyone, but not everyone's saved. And also, considering the fact that people go like, well, he's my savior. I make him my savior. You make him your savior? <laughs> it's like, I'm making you my savior right now. Save me. And Jesus is like, oh, whatever you want, whatever you want. It's like, no, no, no. It's called Lordship Salvation. He says, if anyone confess with their mouth, Jesus is Lord. Then he becomes the Savior, right? So it's really a Lordship issue. Salvation is the result of it. And so the person that receives a brand new heart from God, he enters God's kingdom, John 3, 5. Secondly, familial government, the familial government. So we see that God's rule stretches over the individual who's born again. Secondly, God's rule stretches over the family of God. In other words, when the gospel is put in, on display because God-fearing marriages between a husband and a wife is evident, which is really an expression of the gospel, right? A husband and a wife marriage expresses the gospel. Husbands, love your wives. How? Like Christ loved the church. It's like everything about marriage. And we just had a marriage webinar every Wednesday night in January. And we went through exactly how does a marriage reflect the gospel. And so when it comes to family, God's rule stretches over the family whose marriage reflects the gospel. And when the father of the house declares with Joshua, watch this, when the father of the house declares with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Amen. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God's rule stretches over that family. And then church government. We see in Ephesians 5, verse 25 and 27, how Jesus is cleaning up his church so that he can present herself to him 
a bride with no spot, no wrinkle. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. How? He gave himself for her. Why? That he might sanctify her, cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. That's husbands, that's your job. Sanctify your wife. But what's the end game? That he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot nor wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy without blemish. Then he says later in verse 33, 32, this mystery is profound. And now I'm talking to you about a husband and wife, and I'm comparing it to Christ. He says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. In other words, what I'm saying here is when you have a church government that is ruling according to scriptures, God's, God's kingdom spans over that area in this world. Congregations that are without spot or wrinkle. Thank you. Thank you. Congregations that are without spot or wrinkle, without heresies, in other words, or without idols, with great eagerness toward Christ and quick to repent. You know, um, repentance is kind of gone, hasn't it? Have you heard people speak about repentance? I don't know. Have you heard Joel Osteen ever bring up the word repent? <laughs> No, there's no need for repentance because it's all love, love, love. No, no, no. It's holy, holy, holy. And we have fallen from that glory of God. And that's why we have to repent. So what I'm saying here is that churches need to repent. Because that is exactly what we see happened in the churches, the seven churches of Revelation. He spoke to the church and he says, if you don't repent, I will remove your candlestick. I will suffer you out. You will no longer be a church if you cannot repent. And so God's, God's kingdom stretches over. His rule is over the individual who has a heart for him. It stretches over the family that represents in their marriage the gospel and prays with Joshua, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God's rule stretches over that. God's rule stretches over churches. In other words, who is um, like the church of Philadelphia in the book of Revelation that was spiritually alive. These were the churches over which Christ ruled. These are the churches over which Christ, God's kingdom reigns because they were the ones that would repent. And then, fourthly, here's the most hotly debated part of this whole, where is God's kingdom? Does God rule over what? Well, the fourth government that God established, he only established four Self-government, family government, church government, civil government. And here's where, here's where the rub comes, right? Civil government. Does God's rule or should God's rule stretch over a nation? Should God rule over that nation? See, that's why, let me say, Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all hmm, nations, Baptizing who? Those nations. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching who? Those nations. To observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. You see, nations who recognize the teachings of Christ and write their laws 
and uphold the laws according to scriptures are ruled by God's standards. So we won't spend time on that because I want to go to the fifth one, the universe and everything in it, the universe and everything in it. You see, God does rule in different ways in different areas. For instance, the Father's kingdom is his universal rule and he absolutely has dominion over all creatures and all things. God has absolute rule over the whole universe and anything, everything in it. First Chronicles 29, 11. First Chronicles 29, 11. It says this. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Everything is yours. Cattle on a thousand hills. Everything is God's. Even the rebel is God's. And God gets to deal with them according to his own justice, mercy, and kindness. Either he gets to deal with them, he gets to deal with them. To the one he gives mercy, because nobody deserves it. To the one he gives mercy, to the other one he gives justice. But God himself is never wrong. Because he's free to give justice to whoever he wants to. He's free to give mercy to whoever he wants to. He's never wrong. But he rules over the whole entire universe and everything in it. Again, let me read that to you. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. You, God, are exalted as head over all. <coughs> Isn't it amazing? He's head of everything. And this is where the rub comes. People say, well, if God is God, why are we seeing so much evil? Well, I ask people, hey, would you, do you think God should destroy all evil immediately? Yes, I think he should destroy and do away with all evil. Well, that includes you, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that includes you. So I'm not going to ask for justice. The only thing I ask when I come to God is, God, have mercy. God, have mercy on me. That's all I ask. I'm not going to argue with him. Matthew 28, 18. Matthew 28, 18 says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority. How much? All of it. All authority has been given to who? To Jesus. Where? In heaven and on earth. There isn't a, there isn't a, a fraction in the earth where he doesn't have authority. He has authority everywhere. Abraham Kuyper was a leading theologian, still is, in the world, and he became the Prime Minister of Netherlands in 1901. And if ever you need to re read a good book, read Abram Kuyper's books. But um, he made the statement, he says, there is not a square inch in the whole of creation over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. It's all he's. R.C. Sprawl said this, if there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, <laughs> I just love R.C.'s mind. That's <laughs> like, here's a, if there is one single molecule in the universe running around loose, totally free of God's sovereignty, then we have no guarantee that a single promise of God will ever be fulfilled. If God cannot control a molecule, and if a molecule can say no to God, no, I'm going to do my thing, <laughs> You can't 
how can God's promises stand? He says there is no maverick molecule. Why? Because he upholds all things by his power. I mean, the fine-tuning of the world and the universe is it, it's mind-blowing. And God upholds it all by his power. He is God over all. So if you ask, over which realms does the kingdom of God, where is he king? Where is he king? He is king over the person that says, Lord. He is king over the family that says, God, I submit to your way of marriage and raising children. He is king over churches that reject heresies because they gather around and unite around not a personality or fun programs, but they gather around and unite around the truth of Scripture. He rules over all of that and all of the universe. And his kingdom is growing in every one of those, those areas consistently. His kingdom is consistently growing in every one of those governments. So you may ask, well, Jacques, which one of these realms are we then supposed to pray, God, your kingdom come? Because hey, you're already God over the universe. I can't change it. I can't make you more God. It's like, God, be more of who you are. Do a better job being God. So which one of these realms are we to pray God's kingdom? God, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Which one of those realms are we supposed to focus on and pray? Well, it's obviously not the universe, right? Since God is already governing the entire universe. He already upholds it all. But we ought to pray his kingdom come to individuals. Evangelism. Regeneration. We need to pray for people so they receive new hearts from God. I'm having this great argument <laughs> debate with an, old high, with an old middle school friend of mine on Facebook in South Africa. He's, he's like a flaming atheist, right? And um, he said, stop preaching to me because, um, you know, I will never believe. I'm like, how do you know that? You don't know. <laughs> he said, I've heard many people say that, and then they believe. Because you know what? It's like the wind. You don't know where it comes from. You don't know where it's going. So it's like, whoa, look at that. That guy just got saved. Are you kidding me? And the guy you thought would get saved never did. That's shocking. So what we have to do is we have to pray, God, your kingdom come to the individual. Let them bow their knee before your lordship. Secondly, we have to pray, God, households, families are broken. Marriages are left for dead. God, we pray that marriages would reflect Christ in the church. People would see your marriage and go, I understand the gospel. I understand the gospel. He chose her. She's humbled. She gives herself to him. He gives himself to her in a sacrificial way as Christ gives the church, gave himself to the church. Of course, there's a lot more to it than that. 
So we have to pray, God, your kingdom come in this person's marriage. As a pastor, we do a lot of marriage counseling. And I pray God's kingdom come to your marriage. And most of you here have children. We pray, God, your kingdom come in that household. That your name will never be slandered because of this household that I'm in. That my home will never never be the cause that my neighbor is slandering you. That when I go to work, my work ethic is of such that people would be impressed. Not like, oh, those Christians, man, don't ever, don't ever employ a Christian. Now that is how the name of God is slandered. So we pray for the individual God, your kingdom come to their life. Rule them. God, your kingdom come to these marriages and these families. Rule over that family. God, you're a king. God, we pray for the churches that you standing at that door knocking. By the way, that's not a person's heart. You know that, right? That's the church. He's standing at the door of the church knocking. And he says, if you open the door, I'll come in. But whatever you're doing there, you're doing without me right now. There's no repentance in you. You love the world. You get together in order to be entertained. You have, you have little TED Talks to encourage each other. You got no truth. You got no heart. You lukewarm. He goes through the whole list in Revelation, right? And he says, I'm standing at the door knocking. If you would open, I'll come in. So we pray, God, your kingdom come to churches. In other words, God, rule churches. Rule them. Let them submit to you, God. And then the hot topic, God, rule governments. Rule governments, God. You bring one up, you lift one up, and you bring another down. Just rule them, God, as you will, according to your purpose. You know, it's God's purpose for some countries to be brought down. You realize that? But you never think of it as your own country. <laughs> That's like, God, I know, Lord, Bring down all those countries, not this one. This one you want to lift up. You know? <laughs> so when you pray, God, your kingdom come to the individual, to the family, to the church, to governments, nations. God, when you pray that, you have to keep in mind God's promise. I mean, this is an amazing thing. Look at what God promises in Revelation eleven fifteen. He says, then the seventh angel sounded. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, watch this, the kingdoms of what? This world, the kingdoms of this world, darkness, all of the kingdoms of this world have, past tense, become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdoms of this world have been swallowed up he overthrew them, and now he's ruling them. That's how one kingdom is established by another one coming down, right? He kind of like establishes his kingdom where there was another kingdom. So he now rules instead of somebody else. That is what Revelation eleven fifteen says. So in other words, we ought to pray, Lord, I pray you rule to come. To individuals everywhere through the born-again experience, to an entire child, um, the household to be saved, 
churches to, be re to repent and invite you back. Entire nations to turn to you. Amen. That's how you pray. Your kingdom come. But there's one more little thing that, a little big one, that needs to happen when you pray, your kingdom come. When God's kingdom comes, the kingdom that existed before him needs to be conquered. That enemy needs to be destroyed. And that's where we see David actually does this. You know, I can't wait to meet David. This guy is weeping and wailing and then he's dancing half naked and then, and then he's, uh, you know what, he's playing the harp and next time he's just killing thousands and ten thousands of people. Like this guy, you can't peg him anywhere. Like, you're so weepy, but then you're so joyful and then, and then you're playing a little harp and the next time, next thing is you just conquered a nation all by yourself. Saul has killed his thousands, but David is ten thousands. I mean, it's an amazing guy. I think he was volatile, actually. But David prays what we know as imprecatory prayers. Imprecatory prayers. We're closing with this. And an imprecatory prayer is, in fact, when somebody prays for the destruction of somebody else. Lord, you know, I just pray you destroy this guy over here. <laughs> just kill him, Lord. <laughs> Look at this. I'm going to read it to you in Psalm 55, verse 15. Let death seize them. Let them go down alive into hell. He literally says, let them go to hell. For wickedness is in their dwellings and among them. They're wicked, they deserve to go to hell. In Psalm 69, verse 28, he says, Let them be blotted out of the book of the living and not be written with the, with the righteous. Now, there are many books in heaven. Heaven has a library. Whenever you hear the book of life, you think of one thing, but this is a different book. This is the book of the living. You are currently written in the book of the living. The moment somebody breathes their last, their name is taken out of the book of the living. And if their book is in the book of life, which God wrote before the foundations of the earth, then they have an eternal destiny. So here we see um, David praying, let them be blotted out of the book of the living. He's saying, God, kill them. Kill them. In Psalm 109, verse 8, he prays, Let his days be few, and let another one take his office. Pull him out of office, God. Let somebody else sit in his seat. In Psalm 35, verse 6, he says, Let their way be dark and slippery, and let the angel of the Lord pursue them. In the, in the Good News translation, which we don't really read, but it says, it says this verse very well. It says, May their path be dark and slippery while the angel of the Lord strikes them down. And this is the best one. Psalm 58 verse 6. He says, Break their teeth in their mouth, O God. Break out the fangs. In other words, rip out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. David had many enemies, right? And so he was praying against these enemies. And this prayer ought to be prayed today, but in a different way, because we love our enemies. So the imprecatory prayers uh, from the Psalms should be prayed today, uh, but we need to remember in Ephesians 6 verse 12, we are told, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, 
against spiritual hosts, wickedness, and in heavenly places. And he says that then he carries on and then he refers to them as being thoughts, ideas that exalts itself up against the knowledge of God. So here's like, let's say the scriptures, right? The word of God. And somebody goes, wrong, I'm right, you're wrong. And then humanism comes in and says, no, you're not the most important. Man is the most important. Secularism comes in. No, there's no eternity. We live for here and for now. There's nothing else to live for. Enjoy it while you have it. Or relativism comes in. And relativism, say, relativism says, no, no, no. Um, well, that's how you read it. That's how you see it. Everything is relative. Even authority. Well, he has relative authority, not all authority. Or communism. Have you noticed communism always outlaws one thing, Christianity? <laughs> Why? Because communism is made up in a way that the government does not acknowledge a higher power than themselves. And if you are a Christian, you will be persecuted. Why? Because you don't actually answer to ultimately a government, but ultimately to God, right? That was the church's very first creed, as a matter of fact, just for interest's sake, the early church. Their very first creed was simply what? Jesus is Lord. What they were saying is Jesus, not Caesar, is Lord. And therefore, they were persecuted. Because they said, ultimately, Caesar, you too have to, have to submit to God, our ultimate God. We submit to him ultimately. And then they said, no, no, no. You have to ultimately submit to us. And they said, no, Jesus is Lord. Okay. So we have to pray these imprecatory prayers. But we have to realize that our, that our wrestle is not against flesh and blood, but against these thoughts, against these ideologies that exalt itself against the knowledge of God, which will include humanism. Humanism is God's enemy today. And humanism has crept into the church. Secularism is God's enemy today. It's crept into the church where it's about this life. It's about the here and now, and there's nothing to come hereafter. Relativism, as I mentioned, communism, Darwinism, these things have to be brought down, and they are going to come down. Those things are going to come down. Those thoughts that exalt itself against the knowledge of God. Psalm 110 verse 1 says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand. Remember, Jesus went up where? To be seated on the right hand of the Father. And this is what he said. The Lord, God, said to my Lord, Jesus, sit at my right hand. Because you conquered the war. You won the war. You rose from the dead. Now sit at my right hand till I, God, make your enemies your footstool until I've placed your enemies underneath your feet. These enemies of, of, of the cross are being conquered and will continually be conquered over the next 2,000 years, whatever it is. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7 says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is a promise of, of the coming Messiah, right? This is who you will call him, Wonderful Counselor. He'll be Mighty God. In other words, this son that's coming, this child that's been born, 
He is going to be called Mighty God. He's going to be called Everlasting Father. He's going to be called the Prince of Peace. And then it says, of the increase of his government and of, of peace, there will be no end. They, he will start ruling. His kingdom came when he, started, when he cast out the first demon by the finger of God. And that, that, that rule of his, that kingdom of his will grow and grow and grow and never end. Since of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over, the, over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So how do we pray this? How do we pray this? We've already learned that we pray in God's kingdom to be established over those, over those spheres, those governments, self-government, family government, church government, civil government. But how do we pray this? How do we pray the imprecatory prayer? In other words, God, your kingdom be established where there was a kingdom of darkness. We pray something like this. Lord, I pray you break the teeth of these ideologies, these mouths that speak against your truth. Smash them, bring them down. Lord, I pray that you cause your angels to strike down every one of these thoughts and concepts that lifts itself up against your knowledge. Destroy your enemies, God. Strike them in the mouth. Let the days of their rule in our churches, in our colleges, our communities, and our culture be few. May these enemies of yours be placed under your feet, just as God the Father promised you in Psalm 110 verse 1. Bring them in under your feet. Stand on them and crush them, God. Let those kingdoms come down so your kingdom may be established. Revelation eleven 15, I'll close with this verse. Then the seventh angel sounded, they shall, and there was loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and Christ. He shall reign forever and ever and ever. Prayer. Remember this is prayer. is God's means by which he is going to bring down humanism, secularism. Now, of course, there's debating, there's arguing, but relativism, all of these things is a responsibility of yours during your prayer time. Now, next week, what we're going to do is we're going to talk about give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Did you get something out of the word? Amen.